This is episode 184 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Have Mercy on Us All by Fred Vargas. This episode is part of our Sunday literary series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I've got another treat for you today. It's so fun to find books like this that I get to share with you. Today, I'm going to talk about the novel, Have Mercy on Us All. And it was published originally in France with the title Par Vite et Reviens Tard, uh, which has been translated as Leave Quickly and Come Back Later. I might translate it as get out and don't hurry back. It was published in 2001 by the French author uh, Fred Vargas, which is the pen name of Frédéric Audouin Rousseau. And interestingly, she chose the same pen name as her twin sister, Joe Vargas. Uh, The novel was the third in her series about Chief Inspector Adamsberg, uh, but it was the first one to be translated into English, and that happened in 2004. And the translation, which is no mean feat uh, because of the language involved, was undertaken by David Bellows, who's a professor at Princeton. It was then made into a, a movie in France in 2007 that then uh, used the same title as the original French, Par vite et revient tard, but in English it was translated into Seeds of Death. Okay, hope you have that all straight. And we're going to talk about translation and adaptation a little bit in this episode, which uh, definitely is a topic worth exploring further. All right, let's jump right into the plot since that's uh, what drives our narrative. Uh, Joss Leguerne is the person who opens up the book for us. He's a former Breton sailor, and he begins announcing public messages in Paris uh, near Montparnasse. So the way that works is people put their messages along with a few francs into an envelope, and then he reads them out in a public forum like an old town uh, crier, which is already pretty funny. And then some really weird messages start showing up, written in kind of an old language and seeming to talk about a pestilence that's going to appear. Meanwhile, some backwards fours start showing up on people's doors. It appears that the fours are some sort of a talisman to ward off things like the plague. Remember when we did the episode La Peste by Albert Camus? All right, same old plague. Then, dun, da, 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 dun, the first body shows up. And at first, it looks as though that person might, in fact, have been killed by some sort of disease. 
because he has black spots on his body. And then it starts to look like for our intrepid chief inspector, uh, Commissaire Adamsberg, uh, with the help of a scholar who studies the Middle Ages, that the killer just wanted it to look like the person had died of the plague. Anyway, I really enjoyed the writing in this book, so let's start with that. Here's how the book opens. Joss's settled view was that folk walk faster in Paris than they do in Le Guilvenec, the fishing village where he'd grown up. They would steam down Avenue des Men every day at three knots. This Monday morning, though, Joss himself was doing almost three and a half, trying to make up the 20 minutes he'd lost because of that blasted coffee. It hadn't surprised him one bit. Joss had always known that objects large and small have secret vicious lives of their own. He could perhaps make an exception for pieces of fishing tackle that had never taken him on in the living memory of the Brittany fleet, but otherwise the world of things was manifestly focused on making man's life sheer misery. The merest slip of a hand can give a supposedly inanimate object enough freedom of movement to set off a chain of catastrophes, which may peak at any point on the Murphy scale, from damn nuisance to bloody tragedy. Corks provide a simple illustration of the basic pattern— Viz a wine cork dropped from the table, never rolls back to nestle at the boot of whoever let it slip. Oh no, its evil mind always elects to reside behind the stove like a spider looking for inaccessible sanctuary. The errant cork thus plunges its hereditary hunter, humankind, into a trial of strength. He has to move the stove and the gas connection out of the wall. He bends down to seize the miscreant bung, and a pot falls off the hob and scalds his head. But this morning's case arose from a more complex concatenation. It had begun with the tiniest error in Joss's calculation of the trajectory required to toss a used coffee filter paper into the trash. It landed just off target. The flip top lurched sideways, then swung back and scattered wet coffee grounds all around the kitchen floor. Thus do things transform justified resentment of their human slave masters into outright revolt. Thus do they force men, women, and children in brief but acutely significant bursts to squirm and scamper like dogs. Joss didn't trust inanimates, not one bit. But he didn't trust men either, nor did he trust the sea. The first could drive you crazy, the second could steal your soul, and the last could take your life. Joss was an old and seasoned hand who knew when to yield, so he got down on all fours and cleaned up the coffee mess grain by tiny grain. Since he did his penance without complaint, the thing force receded behind its usual sandbank. The breakfast incident was quite negligible in itself, just a nuisance, but Joss wasn't fooled. It was a clear reminder that the war between men and the things was far from over, and that men were not always the victors far from it. A reminder of tragedies past, of ships unmasted, of trawlers smashed, and of his boat, the Nor'easter, that had started taking water at 0300 on August 23 in the Irish Sea with eight crew on board. 
Yet Joss had always indulged his old trawler's most hysterical demands. Man and boat had always treated each other with kindness and consideration far beyond the call of duty. Until that infernal storm when Joss had suddenly got angry and pounded the gunwale with his fist. The nor'easter, which was already listing heavily to starboard, started shipping water at the stern. The engine flooded, and the boat drifted all night long, with the crew bailing nonstop until it came to a grinding halt on a reef at dawn, with two men lost overboard. Fourteen years had gone by since that sad day, fourteen years since Joss had beaten a lesson into the shipowner's thick skull. Fourteen years since he'd left the Gilvenek after doing nine months for assault and battery and attempted manslaughter. Fourteen years since almost his entire life had gone down that unplugged hole in the hull. So that's our introduction to Joss, the town crier, where we learn a ton about him. All of that is completely ignored in the movie, by the way. I did discover this movie yesterday and then uh, clicked on the buy now button without realizing that that meant actually buy right at this very second, like now. So I ended up watching it yesterday, which is why I'm a little bit late with the podcast today. So all of that backstory is ignored in the movie. There's a very interesting review on Amazon by Roger Bruniate. He talks quite a bit about the translation, but also he has this commentary about the book as a detective story, which I thought was interesting. As a detective story, I would rate it only three stars. It takes a very long time to get going by means of a retired Breton trawler captain who has taken up the outmoded profession of town crier in the district around Gare Montparnasse in Paris. Since he will eventually drop out of the story, the 50 or so pages devoted to him seem too many. Anyway, so Joss uh, takes his job incredibly seriously and thinks very hard about which of the messages should be read and which of the ones he thinks should go into a, quote, better not category, things better left unsaid. What struck the crier most was the unforeseen quantity of better knots. They piled up because there was no other drain for getting this kind of verbal matter out. Better knots were either way beyond acceptable bounds of violence or outspokenness, or else weren't within striking distance of the level of interest that would justify their existence. Whether they were over the top or short of the mark, these better knots were thus condemned to a shadowy, silent, and shameful life in the darker recesses of the mattress. All the same as Joss had learned from his seven years on the job, these messages didn't just wither away. They built up into piles over the years. They clambered on top of each other, getting ever more sour at their mole-like existence as they angrily watched the infuriating comings and goings of authorized and thus more mobile messages. The thin six-inch slot in the crier's box offered a breach to which these prisoners flew like a plague of grasshoppers. Not a morning passed without him finding a crop of better knots at the bottom of his letterbox. Harangue, insults, expressions of despair, calumnies, denunciations, threats, ravings, and rantings. 
Some of the better knots were so feeble, so desperately mindless that they were hard to read right through, some so convoluted that their meaning was all but lost, some so creepy as to make you drop the sheet of paper to the ground, and some so vindictive and so destructive that the crier got rid of them. For Joss did not leave his news unfiltered. And here are some samples for you. Uh, They talk in here about de Cambrai, who is a local retired gentleman who runs a boarding house, but is also very scholarly. He's also one of the many characters whose names start with D. I think we've talked about that before. And unfortunately, uh, Vargas does that same thing. She has a bunch of characters, all with very similar names, all starting with D. The newscast had begun and the small ads were flowing thick and fast. De Cambrai realized that he had not been paying attention as Joss was already on to ad number five. That was how it worked. You had to memorize the number of the ad that caught your ear and go to see the crier afterwards for further details pertaining thereto. De Cambrai wondered where Joss had picked up that strange legal expression. Five, barked Joss. For sale, litter of white and ginger kittens, three male, two female. Six, could the drum players making jungle noises all night long opposite number 36 please desist? Some people have to get some sleep. Seven, all types of carpentry, especially furniture restoration, perfect finish will collect and deliver. Eight, the gas and electric company can go jump in a lake. Nine, Pest control is a complete scam. There are just as many cockroaches as before, and they take 600 francs off you for nothing. 10. Helen, I love you. I'll be waiting for you tonight at the Dancing Cat. Signed, Bernard. 11. Another rotten summer, and now it's September already. 12. To the attention of the butcher on the square, yesterday's meat was old boot leather. That makes three times this week. 13. Come back, Jean-Christophe. 14. Cops means perverts, means pigs. 15. For sale. Garden apples and pears, tasty and juicy. A person comes into the police station to report all those uh, backward-facing fours showing up at her apartment building, and these weird messages start to appear in Joss's box such as this one. Moreover, if at that time there appear any increase of such creatures as are engendered of putrefaction, when as rats, mules, and other creatures accustomed to live underground do forsake their holes and habitations, it is a token of corruption of the same. This part of the book actually is quite funny. And here, de Cambrai, who's played by Michel Serrault in the movie, if you know who he is, helps Le Guerne, Joss, read some of his messages. That special care be taken that no tainted fish or unwholesome flesh or musty corn or other corrupt fruits of what fort foever be suffered to be sold about the city or any part of the fame. I don't know what forts these are, Joss said, still poring over his evening news messages. Sorts, if I may be so bold. Look here, de Cambrai. 
I don't want to seem unfriendly, but would you mind your own business? The Legarnes know how to read the alphabet, thank you. Nicholas Legarne was town crier as far back as the Crimean War, so you're not going to teach me the difference between forts and sorts, damn it. Look here, Legarne. These are copied out from texts from long ago. Our nutter has copied them out and used special letters. At the time, people made the letter S almost the same way as the F, at least in some positions in the word. So what you read out at lunchtime newscast wasn't about things being pofted or about haufas, and it wasn't addressed to justices either. What do you mean they're all S's? Joss stood up straight at last and his voice was getting louder. That's right, Legarne, they're S's, post-house justice, old-style S's shaped like F's. Look at them closely, and you'll see for yourself that they're not quite the same. And then there's a whole cast of characters who live at this boarding house. And here, Joss has uh, gotten the opportunity to rent a room in this house, which he's very excited about, in part because uh, there's a very good cook who uh, works there whose name is Lisbeth. She's actually from Detroit and maybe worked as a prostitute before she became the cook-slash-manager-slash-in-charge-of-everything person at this pension. So here she is giving Joss an orientation now listen here, sailor man, she'd begun as she pulled him into the bathroom for the lecture. Don't you go putting your foot in it here. You can push Castillon around if you like. He's got broad shoulders and he likes to think he can take a joke. He's not as tough as he looks, but he can cope. Don't worry if your watch goes missing during dinner. It's an old habit of his. He can't resist the temptation, but he always gives it back over dessert. By the way, Dessert is stewed fruit on weekdays or fresh fruit in season and semolina pudding on Sundays. No plastic food here. You can eat it all blindfold. But keep your hands off the little lady, sailor man. She's been safe here for a year and a half. She ran away from a husband who'd been thrashing her for eight years. Can you imagine eight years of battering? Apparently, she was in love with the brute. Anyway, she finally saw the light and turned up here one fine day. But watch it, sailor man. Her bloke is scouring the city looking for her so as to flay her alive and welcome her home. The two things don't really go together, but that's how these sort of men work. And he's on autopilot. He's up to killing her so no one else can have her. You've knocked around. You know the scene. So mum's the word. You've never heard of Eveline Curie. Never come across the name. We call her Eva around here that keeps us in the clear. You got that sailor man? Treat her nicely. She doesn't say much. She's quite jumpy. She blushes as if she's always afraid of something. She's getting better bit by bit, but it's a long haul. As for me, well, you know who I am. I'm okay, but I'm finished with legovers and all that stuff. That's about it. Go down to dinner. It's nearly time. And I'd better tell you straight away, it's two bottles per meal and not a drop more because de Cambrai has a weakness and I have to hold him back. If you want to tank up, you go over to Bertin's afterward. And breakfast is from seven to eight. Suits everybody except the blacksmith who's a late riser. Each to his own is what I say. I've said my piece, so don't get in my way and I'll get your ring. I've got one with a chick and one with a boat. Which would you rather have? What ring? asked Joss. 
The ring for your napkin. Oh, and there's a wash every week. White's on Friday, colored's on Tuesday. If you don't want your drawers mixed up with the blacksmiths, there's a laundrette 200 yards down the road. If you want your stuff ironed, Maribel, who comes to do the windows, will take it in for consideration. So, which ring do you want? The chick, Joss said decisively. Lisbeth sighed as she went downstairs. Why do men always try to be smart? So, meanwhile... Commissaire Adamsberg and his right-hand man, Danglar, another D name, are investigating what these fours are about. And Danglar is uh, proposing that there's some kind of art project. And Adamsberg speaks here. There's something that doesn't fit, he said when he'd stopped at a red light. I've got it, said Danglar. The guy did not paint the doors of all the flats, Adamsberg answered. He painted all except one of the doors in each of the buildings. But the Miss door is not in the same place in each of the buildings. Sixth floor left on Marisa's stair, third floor right at Rue Poulet, and fourth floor left at Rue Colincourt. Doesn't fit very well with action art. Danglar chewed his lip one side, then the other. Asymmetry is what guarantees the work's status as art, not decoration, he suggested. It signifies that the artist is offering us a reflection on the world and not a wallpaper design. It's the missing piece in the jigsaw, the hole in the wall, the skew, the throw of the dice, the perfection of imperfection. And then de Cambrai realizes that the excerpts are from Samuel Pepys' diary in 1665, the year of the Great Plague in London. So he's explaining this to Joss. The passages your crackpot has put into your mailbox all come from entries made in 1665, the year of the Great Plague of London, when 70,000 people died. So you see... Day by day, the specials are moving inexorably forward towards the date when the plague broke out. The last one is almost there. That's what I mean by moving forward. For the first time, Joss felt a twinge of fear. What the bookworm was saying made sense and seemed to fit together. But going to the police was something else. The fleek will be tickled pink when we tell them a lunatic is making us read a 300-year-old diary, you know. They're quite likely to think we're the lunatics. Well, we won't exactly say that to the police. We'll say that there's a madman about who's making public forecasts of mass death. Then it's their problem to do something about it. At least I'll have a clear conscience. They'll split their sides even so. Quite. That's why we'll not go to see any old fleek. I know a rather special policeman who doesn't laugh at the same things as other fleeks. He's the one we should go and see. You can go if you like, but count me out. Anyway, it would be a miracle if they took my word for gospel. My record isn't exactly a blank slate, de Cambrai. Nor is mine. Joss was speechless. Hats off, old man. Hats off to the squire. Not only was the bookworm a genuine Breton, like you would never have guessed, but he'd got a record, too, which was presumably why he changed his name. How long? Joss asked plainly, refraining from asking what the charge had been, noblesse oblige. Six months, said de Cambrai. I got nine. Inside? Inside. Same here. They were quits. A moment of heavy silence ensued. Okay, fine, said de Cambrai. So you're coming along? Joss screwed up his face. 
But they're only words, not sticks and stones. You know the rhyme, words can never hurt you? If they could, we'd know about it by now. But we do know, Lagarde. Rhyme isn't reason. Words have always been killers. Since when? Ever since someone shouted off with his head and people rushed in to do the job. Since forever. So fun. And then things aren't quite so funny. Here's another one. On the Monday morning, Adamsberg gave Danglars the news that the affair of the painted fours was over. Danglars kept to his notion of proper form by keeping his lips sealed and by the merest nod of his head signaled that he had registered the end of the case. The following day at 2.15 in the afternoon, the phone rang in the office. It was the district station in the first arrondissement reporting that a corpse had been found at number 117 Rue Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Adamsberg put the receiver down in slow motion as if he were afraid of waking someone up in the middle of the night. But it was the middle of the day. He wasn't trying to let anyone else sleep, but to slip into oblivion without a sound. He knew he often had weird spells of withdrawal, and they worried him. Spells when he would give anything to fall into a lapse of nothingness, to curl up there forever in mindless calm. But these moments when he found he'd been right without having been at all rational, were not good. They plunged him into a black hole where he felt he had been burdened from birth by a poisoned gift imposed on him by a senile witch. Since I'm not invited to this baptism, the wicked fairy had croaked. This was hardly surprising given that Adamsberg Pyrenean parents were as poor as church mice and had celebrated the occasion by wrapping the infant in a rug. Since I'm not invited, I give this child a special nose for sniffing out shit in places where other people can't see a thing. Or something like that, anyway. In rather more stylish language, presumably, since the wicked fairy was supposed to be quite cultivated and not at all coarse. There's some discussion about human behavior and how they react to this, especially to the fours that are painted on the doors, and then other things that happen as they're reported in the newspapers. But I would say that all of that is pretty well downplayed in the novel, not so much in the movie. So it is quite disconcerting and quite close to home in the movie as people start wearing masks and they start clogging up the trains as they're trying to get out of town. And it's definitely a shock to see scenes like that during uh, a pandemic, especially when they were filmed so long ago. Which kind of brings us back here to real life. Uh, So Fred Vargas is very famous in France because of her novels, which were bestsellers. And she was crowned La Reine Française du Crime by Le Nouvel Observateur. And as a historian and archaeologist, uh, she's also known for her work on the Black Death, which makes sense. Her crime fiction policiers have won three International Dagger Awards from the Crime Writers Association for three novels. And she's the first author to have achieved that kind of honor. So as a result, since she is so famous, she shows up on French television, and you can see some of those on YouTube. And French television is kind of like American television, but also way different. Anyway, so they got her on television, and in 2006, 
uh, they were talking to her about her invention, and she'd actually invented a kind of plastic cape that was supposed to protect people from the flu or from other diseases that are transmitted by aerosols. Sounds familiar, right? And this was in 2006. And at the time, I don't know why, she blithely says that there aren't enough masks, there won't be enough. And anyway, they don't work because viruses can get in through your eyes. And it's not totally clear how you're supposed to breathe in her big plastic cape, um, but she is trying to explain about disease and transmission. But French TV, being French TV, all the male hosts just start cracking jokes around her, and she does come off as, as kind of zany. Though, of course, see, now in 2020, she doesn't look quite so, uh, quite so bizarre. And one of the commenters on that YouTube clip, which was uploaded actually in 2020, uh, said, Les esprits éclairés et clairvoyants sont toujours la risée de l'insouciance et de l'ignorance. And so I'll translate that roughly as bright and clear-sighted souls are always the laughingstock of indifference and ignorance. But of course, someone like her is definitely going to develop a character who is an expert in the Middle Ages and who will help our inspector solve his murders. And so this expert is one of three evangelists, as they're called, and they actually have their own separate series written by Vargas. Uh, but in Have Mercy on Us All, this expert is the one who explains that this marking CLT, which also shows up on the doors marked with fours that the inspector mentioned, are not initials. So he says to Adamsberg, Am I right in thinking you're looking for someone whose initials are CLT? Looks like a serious lead. Drop it. CLT is just an acronym. It used to be called the electuary of the three adverbs. Excuse me? Almost every treatise of the plague told you that the very best way to ward off the disease was to say, Cito longe fugius et tarde radias. Word for word, go away fast and for a long time and come back slowly. To put it another way, scram right now and take your time about coming back. That's what was meant by the remedy of the three adverbs, fast, long, late. Latin original, cito longe tarde, which makes CLT. And one of the challenges with this case in the story is that the public doesn't trust the officials, not the police, nor other uh, people who make public announcements. Sound familiar, right? And something that's really an issue today. So here's this newspaper article that came out after the uh, deaths became public. The official position is open to serious question. It is rarely recalled that the last outbreak of plague in Paris took place only 80 years ago in 1920. This third bubonic pandemic began in China in 1894, ravaged the Indian subcontinent where it killed a million people, and made its way to all the major European ports, Lisbon, London, Oporto, Hamburg, and Barcelona. It reached Paris on a river barge from La Havre, which cleaned out its hold near Le Valois. 
In Paris, as elsewhere in Europe, this outbreak did not spread very far and died out within a few years. Nonetheless, 96 people were infected, most of them in the working-class districts to the north and east of the city. Nearly all the victims were indigents and rag pickers living in unsanitary hovels. Even so, the contagion spread into the city center where it killed 20 people. So I want to uh, just do a little bit of real history here. So this was called the third plague pandemic. Which was, so this was a major bubonic plague pandemic that began in Yunnan, China in 1855. It spread to all inhabited continents and ultimately led to deaths of 12 million people in India and China with 10 million killed in India alone, and about 15 million worldwide. And according to the World Health Organization, the pandemic was considered active until 1960, when worldwide casualties dropped to less than 200 per year. And plague deaths have continued at a very low level every year since. So this was kind of our last plague pandemic. The name is called that because it was the third bubonic plague outbreak to affect European society. The first one to remember some of our history again was the plague of Justinian, uh, which took place in the years 541 to 542, and then persisted in various waves until the middle of the 8th century. The second was the Black Death, which killed at least a third of Europe's population in a series of waves of infection from 1346 to 1352 and was responsible for 75 to 100 million people dying. And then the third here was carried by ships to Japan, Singapore, Taiwan, and the Indian subcontinent, spread to many cities around the world, Bombay, Singapore, Alexandria, Buenos Aires, Rio de Janeiro, Honolulu, San Francisco, and Sydney. And the earliest known European cases were in 1896, when two sailors from Bombay died of the plague on ships that were docked in London on the Thames. And if San Francisco caught your ear, there's a nonfiction book I think that's called Black Death at the Golden Gate, which looks kind of good. Maybe we'll do that in a future episode. Paris had an interesting role in that pandemic response. It was the leading host city for the international sanitary conferences from 1894 to 1938, so right in the middle of that third pandemic. And that conference sets the world standards for plague response and pioneered the first global public health institutions that became the World Health Organization in 1948. And Paris also is home of the Pasteur Institute, a leading institution in plague science, which sent medical missions to outbreak sites. And then those often bear scientific fruit, Dr. Alexandra Yersine isolated the plague bacterium in Hong Kong in 1894, and in 1898, Dr. Paul-Louis Simon showed that rats and fleas carry plague to humans. Pandemics and things like the plague don't always show humans at their best, and the novel talks quite a bit about talismans and superstitions. And here's de Cambrai talking about human nature. Adamsberg accuses 
to Cambrai of potentially buying into the protection of a talisman like the backwards four. He says, De Cambrai, did you paint the four shape on your front door this morning? Are you trying to rub me up the wrong way, Inspector? I've taken my stand against morbid superstition. I'll fight it on the beaches. I'll fight it in the streets. I'll never surrender. I, Ducoidic, Hervé, Breton, by birth and obstinate by nature, will stick my finger in the dike until my dying day, alongside Le Guerne and Lisbeth. You are cordially invited to join the resistance. I'll think about it. De Cambrai was in full spate. Superstition is the rotten fruit of human stupidity. Stupidity is the seedbed of disinformation, and the sole product of disinformation is disaster. Superstition is the greatest pestilence mankind has ever known, and it has killed more people than all plagues put together. Inspector, please do try to catch the plague monger before you're sacked. I don't know whether he's aware of what he's doing, but he is wronging the population of Paris by driving it back down to the very lowest basement of human nature. And then later, Adamsberg is hoping that he'll get some respite from all the craziness happening in the Parisian population. Adamsberg was hoping that Sunday would pour some water on the flames as France doesn't go in for weekend papers. The final estimate on Saturday evening had depressed but not surprised him. Between four and 5,000 apartment buildings in central Paris daubed with mostly amateur fours. On the other hand, on a Sunday, almost everyone has time to get out the brush and paint tin, so maybe Saturday's figure would be vastly exceeded by the end of the day. The weather would be the decisive factor. If Sunday, September 22nd, turned out fine and sunny, people would get out into the country and drop the whole story for a few hours. But if it was a miserable day, they would feel low, and their first victims would be front doors. A few more words here about Vargas. Uh, She is a bit of a cantankerous character, as many people on the French left are, or maybe she's just sick of not being taken seriously. Uh, When she gets introduced on this one program, which she's talking about her new book called Humanité en Peril, uh, which is a book warning us against ecological disaster, she corrects the host of the program when he says that she's a scientist by training, une scientifique par formation. And she says, no, it's not by formation, it's by profession. And so she emphasizes to him uh, that she's been working as an archaeologist for several decades. Uh, She worked first at the French National Center for Scientific Research and then at Institut Pasteur. And then she explains that she's just written those uh, crime novels when she was on vacation, so she wants to be taken seriously. We get a taste of her intellect when Adamsberg dresses down one of his sergeants who makes a sexual remark about the woman who comes to report the fours painted on the doors in her building. While you're here, sergeant, you are going to learn something that may surprise you, Adamsberg said slowly. In this branch, women are not just little dumplings with a hole in the middle. If this comes as news to you, as I fear it might, 
then let me encourage you to learn a little more about them. Women have legs and feet underneath. You will also find a torso and a head when you look at their upper parts. Think about that, Sergeant Favre, assuming you have something to think with. So the novel is super fun. It's kind of a thinking man's Da Vinci Code. Uh, But the plot does have some issues, at least as a traditional whodunit, the way we think of it in the United States. There's a very long and very good Amazon review by Roger Bruniate, and he writes, The middle section of the book, though, is quite good, with Adamsberg keeping a frustrating step or two behind the scenes while trying and failing to keep a handle on his own private life. But the end quite falls apart, I think, relying too much on over-complex backstories that were not so much as hinted at before and long confessions in lieu of patient detection. It is complicated and weird and sort of barely holds together, certainly not like a normal whodunit, but the movie just sweeps that all away, takes us to the Congo where there's a drug operation that goes wrong and old scores have to be settled. And it also includes a bunch of car chases and shootouts and a climax with a fight on a really spectacular bridge in Paris at night. None of that occurs in the book. On the positive side, here's an excerpt from an article by French professor Carolyn Durham from College of Worcester about the adaptation. And she says, Knowledge of both Fred Vargas's Paravite et Reviens-Tard and Régie Varnier's adaptation not only adds to our appreciation of novel and film, but also enriches our understanding of the process of adaptation itself in somewhat curious and unexpected ways. The success of Parvite et Reviens-Tard depends on the representation of place, both generally and specifically. Although the character of Chief Inspector Adamsberg, the hero of the two works, is often cited as the primary obstacle to adaptation, Varnier turns Vargas's introspective hero into an exemplary Parisian flaneur and Paris into the star of the film. It is really cool to see all the scenes of Paris in the movie, uh, but the movie definitely does uh, lack in a number of areas. I think this idea of adaptation is important, and it would be interesting to investigate what happens with translation from one language to another and also one medium to another And remember how the translation of Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann really changed people's interpretation or even their interest in the novel. So back to Roger from the Amazon Review, who has some specific comments about the translation. I was given this book originally to read in French under the title Par Vite et Reviens Tard, uh, Leave Quickly and Take Your Time Coming Back. It is some of the most difficult French I have ever read, given Vargas's verbosity, unfamiliar vocabulary, and abundant patois, and the fact that there is hardly a normal character in it for four of the first six chapters. Then I checked part of the translation by David Bellows in the Look Inside feature and immediately realized that this was something very special. So I ordered it and waited to finish the book in English, 
with occasional checking of the French for comparison. Bellos is a distinguished English translator and head of the translation program at Princeton, but he does not write like an academic at all, treating the text with remarkable freedom and much recourse to slang, British slang, I should emphasize, for example, the phrase, bloody great howler for glaring error. He goes further than I've ever seen a translator go in altering the structure, images, and even the literal meaning of its model. Yet he comes up with a creative work in its own right, a living being of a different nationality, but with the spirit and bloodstream of the original flowing in its veins. Here's a short example, which I give first in my own literal translation from the French, and you'll remember this, we read this out loud. The least error in handling, since it gives the thing an unexpected freedom, however small, sets off a chain of calamities that can run the gamut from annoyance to tragedy. Here's Bellows. This is what I read. The merest slip of the hand can give a supposedly inanimate object enough freedom of movement to set off a chain of catastrophes which may peak at any point on the Murphy scale from damn nuisance to bloody tragedy. And so Roger goes on. Now now I can see that some authors and publishers might think this was going too far, though Vargas used Bellos twice, but for me it created a unique object, a book I read virtually for the vigor of the translation alone and reveled in it from beginning to end. What a great review. A critic of the movie complained that the movie had turned... Uh, Vargas's writing into a bland story, and I think that's true, and it's disappointing, and and that's that's the problem with that movie. You lose the writing, or at least in this one, you did, and there's a lot that's lost in the movie. There's no humor. There's nothing that really passes for psychology, even though there's a lot of that in the book. Or, or the only thing that makes it sound somewhat psychological is that sometimes there are scenes of people just staring out a window for an extended period. Many of the most interesting characters are gone. Joss, he's not even a sailor. He's just a wannabe actor who got jailed because he got in a fight, um, which had nothing to do with his backstory in the book. And one movie critic wrote, and I think this is the gist of it, when you change the original story you'd better be a good writer. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.